Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Title of this message is The Scarlet Rope. The Scarlet Rope, Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the first 21 verses of Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet rope in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. And as for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet rope in the window. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, what a delight it is to read your word. Indeed, nothing that I will say will come close to being as wonderful as even the simple reading of your word. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to read your word. Thank you for preserving your word for us to, uh, to read and to study and to live by. We ask, Lord, that you would take this passage of Scripture, which is deeper than I can swim, and it's higher than I can climb, and it's wider than I can reach. But Lord, if you will, let us just scratch the surface of what is in this passage so that we can bring a word from you to us. Lord, as we do, we pray for people in our church. Lord, our hearts go out to the family of Tommy Parker. And so, Lord, we pray for his son Mark and his wife Tanya and for uh, Courtney and Chris and Delaney, their family, over the loss of Mark's dad. I pray, Lord, for Christy Francis as she undergoes treatments for cancer. Wayne Lasseter as well. Lord, I pray for Brett Hurd, Michelle Banks' son, 21-year-old son with leukemia. And I pray that you would uh, guide not only Brett and his family, but the doctors as they uh, move forward with his treatment. Lord, I pray for uh, Jimmy Hedrick, uh, Lord, the victim of a stabbing. And Lord, I, I just pray for him and for his mother, uh, Lori Batchelor, who is in our church family. Lord, our, our hearts go out to Mr. Clyde Taylor and to uh, Billy Joyner and to uh, Annie Hamlet, to uh, Winnie Thomas. Lord, we pray for Janice Grace, and uh, we pray for Ann Sims, a relative of Celia Bray, who is dealing with severe sickness. Uh, many others, Lord, we just lift them up to you. We pray for our church family, and we pray for our church. Uh, Lord, now speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Joshua opens right after the death of Moses. Moses, the great man of God, one of two men in the Old Testament, who is lifted up on a pedestal above everybody else, the other one being Abraham. Moses had lived his first 40 years growing up in the palace of Pharaoh. He was an Israel, Israelite, but uh, he had been rescued from uh, death when he was a baby and was raised in the house of Pharaoh the first 40 years of his life. And then at, at age 40, he fled Egypt in fear for his life because Pharaoh had had put a contract on his head, and so Moses fled for the area of Midian in the Arabian desert. While he is there, uh, he gets a job uh, working as a farmer for a guy named Jethro. He ends up falling in love with Jethro's daughter, one of his daughters, and uh, Moses marries that daughter. And when Moses is about 80 years old, Moses is going up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's tending his father-in-law's flock when God speaks to him out of a burning bush, a bush that is burning but not being consumed. And God tells Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to rescue my people from Egyptian slavery. And after a prolonged discussion in which Moses offered one excuse after another, uh, finally Moses agreed to go to Egypt and, and you remember the, the ten plagues that befell uh, the land of Egypt before Pharaoh finally allowed the Israelites to leave. And they leave Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, 
and they go out into what is, what is the Arabian desert, the Arabian wilderness, and they end up staying there for 40 years. And so for 40 years, uh, the, the Israelites have had Moses to be their leader. They've had a strong leader in Moses, and when we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the children of Israel are encamped on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses knows that he's about to die, and so he gives them a review, which is the whole book of Deuteronomy, a review of everything God has done for them. He reviews the law that God had given them, and he's very fearful that they will forget what God has done, because it is very easy for human beings to forget all the good things that God does for us. And after Moses gives this review of all of God's actions, he goes up on a mountain and he dies. And the Bible says that God buries Moses and nobody knew where it was that God had placed Moses' grave. Then in Joshua chapter 1, God approaches Joshua and says, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you get up and you will lead these people into the land that I have promised and you will conquer this land. You will lead them to conquer the land. And so it's a very tragic time. It's a transitional time. The time wandering in the wilderness is gone and now it's time to cross the Jordan and to conquer the land that God had been promising his people for uh, for over a century. And so uh, as they, they look at the Jordan River and, and Joshua plans to lead the people over into Canaan land, he, he begins to think about the city of Jericho, which will be their first stop. It'll be the first battle. Jericho is a walled city. It has its own king. This is a major, major place. It will be a, uh, or should have been a very tough battle for the Israelites. And so uh, Joshua decides uh, what, like Moses did uh, 40 years earlier or 38 years earlier, he sends spies into the land to check out the land. And in this case, there were two spies. He sends them into the land, and they stop in uh, Jericho, and they spy out the land. And so uh, here, here comes this whole story that you have heard many times about the spies going into Jericho. It's a very unusual story has several unusual aspects to it, surprises to it. For instance, it is unusual that, uh, one unusual aspect is that whereas Moses sent 12 spies 38 years earlier to spy out the promised land, Joshua sends two spies. But the thing that's really, really different about it is, aside from the 12 or two, is that Moses sent 12 spies out publicly whereas Joshua sends them out secretly. It's very interesting. Everybody knew when, when Moses selected the 12 spies that, that they were putting together a, a team of 12 men, one man from each of the 12 tribes, and, and everybody knew that Moses was sending them out to try out the land. But in Joshua's case, he chooses two men, and he sends them out secretly. Nobody else knew that God had sent, that Joshua had sent these two spies out. Another odd thing about this uh, story is that when Joshua sent these men out, he says to them in verse 1, he says, he says, go look over the land, especially Jericho. King James Version says, even Jericho. The word is better translated, especially Jericho. So uh, Joshua sends them out 
to search through the whole land, but especially the city of Jericho. Now, we can only speculate as to whether these two men, these spies, searched out the whole land. The Bible is silent as to whether they did, but the focus is on their visit to Jericho. It is also unusual that these two men who were among God's people, who were among God's chosen people, when they get to Jericho, they spend the night in a brothel. They spend the night in the home of a prostitute. Now, it's not that they just visit there, which would have been bad enough, but they choose to stay there. I don't think that we would like it if we sent out a mission team from our church to go uh, perform a mission project if we found out that they had stayed in a brothel. I don't believe that we would appreciate it very much. But here, these two spies stay in the home of a prostitute. Now, this prostitute, whose name is Rahab, oddly enough, is remembered in the New Testament. She is cited by name. And when she is cited, She is cited not as someone with a despicable occupation, but she is cited as someone who is a hero of faith. Now, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Uh, Today, when we think about heroes of faith, we think of people like Dr. Billy Graham or we think of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or we think about people like uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, or people like that. I I would doubt seriously that if I had you to list the names of heroes of faith, that you would list anybody whose occupation is being a prostitute. And yet in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, by faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, I don't know uh, if you realize where I just read there, Hebrews chapter 11, but Hebrews 11 is that wonderful chapter that we call the Hall of Fame of Faith. Only heroes of the faith are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, and lo and behold, Right there along with Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Noah and Moses is none other than Rahab the prostitute. Now that is unusual for a number of reasons. One being she wasn't Jewish. You'd think that the hall of fame of Jewish faith would include only Jewish people, but it didn't. Rahab was not Jewish and she's there. She was a prostitute. That, as I've already emphasized, is surprising. She lied to protect the Israelite spies. Most of the time, we do not look upon lying as something that is morally acceptable. There are a few times when it might be the case, such as Corey Ten Boom lying to the Nazi authorities in order to protect some uh, Jewish people who she was hiding away. She lied in order to protect them. We would, we would give her a pass on that. But Rahab lied to protect the spies when the king of Jericho sent an entourage to Rahab's house and said, turn over the men who are staying with you because they are spies sent out to 
uh, spy out our land. They're doing espionage. And she said, well, they're not here. That was a lie. They were here. She said, and I don't know where they, come, where they came from. That was a lie, too. She knew exactly where they'd come from. And she said, uh, not long after they came here, they left. And they've left, and I don't know which direction they went in. That wasn't true either. She was hiding them on the roof of her house in between these tall stalks of flax. She was a liar. And she was selfish. How can a hero of faith, cited in the New Testament as a hero of faith, be someone who's so selfish? Did you see where she was selfish? When she went back up on the roof to talk with those spies, she told them, she said, look, uh, we know why you're here. We've heard about everything God has done for the Israelites. He, he parted the Red Sea, what he did to Pharaoh, what, what he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites. And, and we're all fearful. We're melting with fear over what we've heard that God is doing through you. And so we know that God has given our city into your hands. So I'm asking you when you come to take our city that you will not let me die, that you will save me, and also that you will save my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all the ones who, who belong to them. In other words, they had, they had servants. They owned slaves. Now, the interesting thing about that, I think, is uh, she begged for the rescue of herself and her family and her family slaves, but didn't ask that they, that they save anybody else in the city that she had grown up in. I don't know. That seems kind of selfish to me. I mean, now I can get, if, if, I, if I were in a situation where uh, I thought we were in grave danger and the, and the people who are going to put the danger on us, they came and talked to me, and I, I, would certainly, I would certainly mention my family. I'd say, please, now, please let my wife Amanda uh, survive and, and let my son Zach and his wife Nicole and, and let my daughter Hillary uh, let them survive. But then I would also include all the folks at Palmetto Baptist Church. And I'd include all my friends. And I'd include my neighbors. You know, I, I would want to include more. What did she do? She only said, look, my family's all I'm caring about. I want you to save my family. Well, she was selfish. And yet, she's cited as a hero of faith. On top of that, the New Testament opens with Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is a family tree of Jesus that is divided up into 42 generations, a set of 14, then another set of 14, then another set of 14. And in those three sets of 14, there are five women mentioned in Jesus' family tree. And lo and behold, you will not believe who is one of those five women. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 2, reading through verse 5. Matthew says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, that's one of the women, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Jesus had a prostitute who was a selfish liar in his family tree. I find that comforting uh, because 
Now I realize that I'm not the only person in this world who has black sheep in my family. Jesus had black sheep in his family. That makes me feel better. How many of you have ever done uh, family tree research on your family? Have you? Have you? I know why the rest of you have not. Because there are black sheep in your family. I know there are. And you just don't want to admit it. You may be the black sheep. I don't know. So there's some unusual things about this passage. And lastly, and a very unusual and unique uh, uh, part of this story is, is the seemingly minor detail of this scarlet rope. Rahab has a scarlet rope. It's a red-colored rope. And when the spies go to leave, she drops that rope out of her window, which is on the outside wall of the city of Jericho. And the two spies go down that rope and escape. Now, it's a seemingly minor detail. It was probably a rope that she'd kept around the house. If I had it, it'd stay up in my storage barn. I'd only use it about once every eight or ten years, you know, and then I'd have to find it, for, spend about three hours trying to find it. So she has this rope, and, and they go down. Now, when, when they start to leave, they tell her, they say, look, we will rescue you when we come back because of what you, how good you've been to us, but there's one requirement that you must keep, and if you don't keep this requirement, we will not be bound to our contract with you. She says, what is that? She said, they said, this red rope by which you let us down, you have to, it has to be hanging out the window of your house when we come back to take this city. If we don't see the red rope, if we don't see the scarlet rope, we will not save you. Now, all of a sudden, this seemingly insignificant piece of rope becomes absolutely important. It becomes absolutely essential because without it, they will not rescue this woman and her family. It's very interesting. It's also interesting when you think about the fact that when the Israelites do come two chapters later to take Jericho, they march around Jericho one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day, they march around it seven times, and on the seventh time they, they march around it, they blow all their musical instruments, and the walls came tumbling down. You remember that? But evidently, not all the walls came tumbling down because Rahab's house was, in, was built in the wall, and the outside of her house was the outside of the wall, and there was a window that came out of it. And so when the walls came tumbling down, her section of the walls must have stayed up because she had to drop that red rope outside that window. The scarlet rope. For centuries, Christian scholars who study the Bible have called this rope the scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. In King James, the word is not rope or cord, it's a thread. But, of course, a thread would not be strong enough for someone to come down. What they're, what they're talking about is definitely a scarlet rope. But this scarlet rope or this scarlet thread that runs through the Bible, what, what, what do scholars mean by that? Why is it so important? Why is it so significant? Well, it's significant because throughout the Bible, from, the, from Genesis to Revelation, there is this running theme of a scarlet thread, a scarlet rope that represents or symbolizes the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
The blood of Christ runs through the Bible. It's not just in the New Testament. Some of us think that Jesus only comes along in the New Testament. He doesn't, my friend. He's there in the very beginning. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and, and by Him were all things. By Him nothing was made that, uh, without Him nothing was made that was made. Talking about Jesus. We see this scarlet thread all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We see it in the fact that after Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit, the fruit that God had said, you are not to eat of that, and they realized they were naked and they got uh, fig leaves and they sewed them together and they hid, tried to hide from God in the garden. The Bible says in Genesis 3 that God, the voice of God, came walking in the garden in the cool of the day and God commences a conversation with Adam in which he finds out what they've done. Of course, he already knew it. And he, he penalizes them for, for this, this incredible uh, trespass. But the Bible also says that God then killed animals. He sacrificed animals in order to provide garments or coverings for Adam and Eve. The word for covering is, is a, a, a theological term, the term atonement. Atonement literally means to cover over something. And when we talk about Jesus being the atonement for our sins, part of that meaning is that through his death on the cross, Jesus covers over our sins. But there's more to atonement than just covering over sins. It is the idea of, of reconciling us to God. I like to take the word atonement and split it up into three syllables. At one meant. And so atonement means to bring into one what has previously been separated. We have been separated from God, but through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have the the uh, the the privilege of being reconciled to God. And we see that as early as Genesis 3. We also see it in Genesis chapter 22 when Isaac is told by God to take his son Isaac up to Mount... Uh, Abraham is told to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his son there. And, and Abraham takes Isaac and he binds him to uh, a stone and he takes a knife and he rears back and he comes down to slay his son and God says, Stop! Don't lay a hand on the boy, for now I know that you trust me. It's a very incredible statement for God to make. Don't lay a hand on the lad, for now I know that you trust me. And about that time, Abraham stopped, and in the corner of his eye, he saw a ram that was caught in a thicket because God had provided a sacrifice for Isaac. That's the scarlet thread. As God provided a sacrifice for Isaac, he's provided his sacrifice of Jesus for us. It's seen in the Passover lamb in Exodus, the early chapters of the book of Exodus. When Moses came back to Egypt and they had gone through nine plagues and Pharaoh refused to change his mind, God says, I'm going to send one more plague and this time he'll let you go. You're to take a, a firstborn male lamb and you are, that's without blemish, and you are to kill that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and smear it on the door frames of your homes. And everybody who has the blood smeared on the door frames, when I, when I visit Egypt on the night of death, I will pass over those homes, but I will, I will strike the firstborn of every home that does not have the blood applied. 
This blood is, is a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus. It is part of this scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. It's seen in the institution of the sacrificial system that is so tediously described in the book of Leviticus. It is also seen here in this scarlet cord of Rahab. And it is seen during the thousands of years of sacrifices that are, are the centuries of sacrifices that are performed in both the tabernacle and later the temple. The scarlet thread runs all the way to the ministry of John the baptizer when he's there in a swimming hole in the Jordan River baptizing people. And he looks up and he sees his cousin Jesus coming. And he says to everybody there, he says, look, the Lamb of God, referring back to this Passover lamb in Exodus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it continues through the Gospels all the, way, all the way to the end of the Gospels where in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus on the cross utters his final words. And his final words were, it is finished. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that is why the symbolism of this scarlet thread runs through the Bible. And that is why it is so significant. Because it is the theme of atonement. Jesus covering over our sins. Jesus reconciling us to God. Atonement refers to Jesus giving his life for us on the cross. And so this minor detail of this scarlet rope. became the most important detail in the story because without it, the spies would not have saved Rahab and her family. I think it's significant for us today too. In your own heart, do you know that the scarlet thread is there? Do you know that you have invited Jesus Christ into your life and that Jesus' blood has covered your sin and that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has reconciled you to God. Do you know this to be true? You know it to be true if you've made the simple decision to invite Christ into your life. Do you have the scarlet rope attached to your heart? That's the question. Because without it, there is no salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an incredible story and how easy it is to go through the story of the spies and Rahab and just totally skip over that scarlet rope detail. And yet that scarlet rope is the most important part of that story. Because without that scarlet rope, Rahab would never have been saved. Her mom and dad, her brothers and sisters, and the people with them would never have been rescued. More importantly, Lord, without your shed blood, we could, we could, no, we could not have life. And so, Lord... I realize that in this room, probably most people here have invited Jesus into their lives. But I'm also quite sure that in this room, there are those who have never invited Christ into their lives. They don't have a scarlet rope symbolically attached to their heart. 
But Lord, how wonderful it would be for someone to come during this invitation and receive you as Savior. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work moving us right now. Save lost souls in Jesus' name. Amen.